our strength coach here, I, I, you know, Mike Eubanks, he's fantastic. But anyway, we were talking the other day and he equated it to um, in college, you're able to fly the plane with the door closed. But in the NFL, you're kind of flying the plane with the door open because you you can't control very much. You've got you don't know who's going to be there to every day. You're trying to you're trying to plan an ideal way to progress guys. But then you don't know who's going to be there on a day to day basis because it's not mandatory. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. So this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is all about, again, collision sports, but this time from a load monitoring perspective. So we've got Mike Lewis, who is Director of Applied Sports Science at the Houston Texans. So weird because I've already had someone on with that job title, which is actually Matt Van Dyke, who stepped up in a restructure at the Texans, and Mark has filled from the bottom and taken his place. So we dive into how we can manage, well, monitor and manage collisions using using GPS data, how we can use technology to monitor and assess neuromuscular fatigue, the protocols around that, the ins and outs, and what to be aware of when you're doing that in terms of the data that we're collecting. And we just need to be a little bit careful with with certain aspects of how we go about that. So really interesting episode coming up with Mark, who's got a super interesting story, and he's now at the Houston Texans. So really appreciate him coming on. Would love to know what you think and enjoy. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in house sports scientist to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30 day free trial. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So without further ado, over to the episode with Mark. Mark Lewis, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. I say this every single time with people because it's normally, well, it is normally me on the uh, who's messed things up schedule-wise, but I know your schedule is particularly tough, so I'm, I'm really glad to get you on, line up schedules, and uh, and have a little chat. But if anyone doesn't know who you are, Mark, would you be able to give us a brief overview of where you've been, what you've done, uh, and what you're doing now? Because I know you've got an interesting story. 
Um, yeah, sure. Uh, I'll go ahead and, 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 you know, give you a little background um, in terms of, of how I got to where I am. Um, little, I guess, non-traditional path um, in terms of, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't go to high school. I didn't have a, a normal, I played high school sports, you know, went into college, um, studied exercise science or sports science, and then transitioned into career. So, um, I actually grew up in a, in a really different environment, uh, didn't have parents, um, didn't have family, uh, grew, uh, lived temporarily with a lot of different people, um, was in social services part of the time, actually ended up um, being homeless as a teenager, um, got emancipated at 16 and, um, you know, working just, you know, at a restaurant with a construction company, um, living in Section 8 housing. Uh, and then basically the military was my way out. So I ended up being uh, an airborne infantryman in the army. Uh, that, that was the first time I remember I got, I was so excited when I got to boot camp, um, because uh, you didn't have to worry about where your meals come from. You always had a, somewhere to sleep. You had health insurance. You had, you know, you could anything you needed. And it was, I, it was mind blowing. And so I had a lot of fun. <laughs> and when I went to boot camp, I was like, this is awesome. Um, so that actually, I, I went in as, ju as just a basic infantryman, 11 Bravo contract. And then when I got in, you know, when I got into uh, basic, I did qu uh, quite well. And so I was able to get some other opportunities just because I was so excited to be there. And I was, you know, uh, you know, really enthusiastic how I did everything. Um, I really loved, uh, I fell in love with prepar physical preparation in the military, um, running, uh, physical training. And then um, actually on one of the deployments, um, I stumbled upon through basically having someone that worked in administration, um, with our unit that had studied exercise science in college. Um, I started reading some anatomy and physiology books that he had, uh, just because I was really obsessed with training. And so he's like, Hey, you know, you might enjoy these. You can learn a little more about, you know, how the body works, things like that. So I just, on, on deployments, I became obsessed with reading, you know, physiology, anatomy, biomechanics. Um, and then, uh, from there, uh, you know, I, I went to college, my undergrad, uh, from Wake Forest university in exercise science. And so there I started this trend of, I was really, uh, obsessed with research and understanding research methodology, um, how to systematically answer questions. And, um, I, I just became obsessed with being in the lab. Um, I was, I was one of those annoying students who was always around his professors when they were in their office or in their lab and like asking questions and all of that. And so, um, really that's where I started this path of having one foot in research. Um, you know, and then on the other side, I really enjoyed coaching. I enjoyed being on the field. I enjoyed being on the court. I enjoyed being in the weight room. And so I, you know, doing strength conditioning internships, working as a personal trainer. So I had one foot in research, um, and then one foot uh, you know, on the field, on the court, in the weight room. So I started this trend and that kind of continued throughout grad school, um, and, and being able to understand, okay, you know, how do you use, um, how do you systematically answer questions? Um, and how do you use different types of, uh, statistics to appropriately analyze? Um, and then how, and then learning how to use a lot of different, uh, types of technology instrumentation. Um, and then on the other side, the relational part, working with athletes, working with coaches, understanding how to apply information. And so that kind of training kind of followed me. Uh, so I went and did my master's in exercise physiology. And then um, 
really when I got into sports science, sports science was so um, was so new in terms of these applied positions. So most of the sports scientists that I knew were academics practicing, and then um, the, the sports scientists in applied settings seemed to be, you know, in the UK where they seemed to be in in you know these one-off type scenarios. Um, to where it wasn't a career where you saw all teams had sports scientists. It just, you know, and so at thinking about what I was going to do with my career, I knew what I loved, um, but it was just how can I take everything I love and turn it into a, a job? And so um, when I got to my PhD at Virginia Tech, um, I, I was in this scenario where there was an academic there who was um, using um, stat sports, uh, you know, uh, integrated microtech units tracking load on on uh, women's soccer players he was using it as part of a research study and then communicating a little bit with coaches and then um there was on you know in terms of strength coaches there were strength coaches there that i knew um, through my strength coach network so i was coaching as just a volunteer strength coach doing my phd next phys working with this individual and there was no sports scientists in, in at that university and so I just kind of started going, um, you know, door to door, so to speak, to different coaches and seeing how I could like help them, help them have information that might be useful, um, asking other strength coaches. So I, I just, the strength coaches I didn't know there, I started having conversations with them like, hey, how can, you know, how can potentially, you know, we use information or use data and, and you know, to help inform decision making around what, you know, training or around practice. And so... Um, I kind of just started doing the job of a sports scientist there at that university. And then um, I ended up uh, working primarily with football uh, in terms of they had just got stat sports as well. And they had all this information coming in. And then because of my background kind of being in strength conditioning and in research, I was able to like I knew strength coaches and I kind of had the understanding of being a strength coach in terms of you know, how this information be utilized, some of the logistics, um, being able to actually, uh, you know, talk to strength coaches in, the, in ways they understand. But at the same time, I knew, um, you know, how to appropriately analyze data, how to appropriately store and manage data and, and what that information might be telling us. Um, so it wasn't just, you know, we're going to look at Max Velo all day. Um, and so uh, I think from that, that really helped me, um, integrate well into their in their football strength staff there and so one of my one of my mentors and and good friends to this day ben hilgart was the head strength coach there and he's he's just a fantastic person um kind of an old school strength coach in terms of mentality but at the same time um really open to new ideas new ways of thinking innovative um i really appreciated you know his opera like as we integrated this information there and kind of got it going um my role expanded to where I became the director of sports science there. And then when, uh, as a position opened up on their strength staff, I also became the associate director of strength conditioning there. And so working with that, working with the, uh, the football team there. And so as my role expanded, I was a coaching role. It was a sports science role. And we were able to do more and more there, um, starting from scratch, basically. And so um, from there, I was at Penn State University as the associate director of performance science. Um, I got to work with um, one of the best people I know there, uh, Josh Nelson, who I know you've, you've, uh, we've talked a little bit about him. He's absolutely fantastic. Um, one of the, one of the best people you'll ever meet, but also just in terms of, of his skill set, um, 
um, one of the best planners, um, long-term planners, uh, organizers, and he's fantastic at, at being able to, to think in terms of high performance. So while I was at Penn State, that's really, I think, what I became better at, um, stepping outside of the sports science and being in the weeds and really trying to understand how you know, a high performance unit works, bringing synergy across different areas, um, and being able to step back and power others to do their, uh, to do their jobs and, and really being able to, um, you know, bring a lot of different, uh, areas together in one cohesive, uh, unit. And so that's, that's really the time I spent there. I, I really enjoyed it, um, with Nelly. And then, uh, coming down to the Texans, uh, I was fortunate enough to, um, you know, get the opportunity to come down and join the Houston Texans. I initially joined as their sports science, their applied sports science coordinator. And then um, we had some restructuring here uh, and going to more of a high performance model to where we now have a high performance director for uh, sport performance and a medical director for our uh, athletic training, return to, uh, to sport, and then um, um, kind of our medical side. And so with that, I moved up into the uh, position of director of applied sports science here. And I've been here for uh, about six and a half months now and absolutely love it. Um, and so, and I get to work with fantastic people. We have such a great crew here. Um, obviously, uh, Matt Van Dyke's been here a while. Uh, Matt's a great friend. Um, I like to, I like to think in terms of we're, you know, we're a little bit of the dynamic duo in terms of we, you know, we just, every day we're into something and like being able to talk with him and being able to, to, if you're around people that challenge you kind of that iron sharpens iron mentality. Um, obviously Ryan Grubbs is here. Fantastic in terms of, uh, being, you know, one of the, the smartest people in terms of, of speed development and sprint mechanics. Um, so we just have a lot of fantastic people. I could name, give you a list, but we have just, uh, I, I like to think one of the best performance staffs, if not the best performance staff in the NFL. I think it's a, it's a first, well, it's definitely the first time we've had two people who've got the same position because of promotion with Matt coming on the podcast when he was in, uh, was it the same job title as what you've got? And then he's moved up and you've taken his? Okay. Yeah, it's, it's so funny it's because first he, time came, it's come around. he came to the Texans as the sports science coordinator, then got promoted to director. And then I came here as the coordinator, got promoted to director. So I just keep following him. And I nearly took over for him at Texas when he was at Texas. I actually was offered the job behind him. So it was funny because we, we we talk about it all the time because we, we kind of almost following each other around and like the position out. Our resumes are going to look exactly the same at the end of the day nearly. <laughs> right. Let's dive in. Let's dive in. And we've got some load monitoring type discussion. We've got some um, understanding acute fatigue and a little bit about recovery as well. But we'll, we'll go into the load monitoring to start with and just... I think what might frame the discussion quite nicely is trying to understand the demands of American football. How have you gone about that? Because there's, it's not like other sports when you've got you've got different positions, but and you've got different demands. But the demands on the positions in the in American football are, are extremely different. So how do you try to understand that and 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 quantify that to to help push things forward? Sure. Yeah. I, you know. I think. Um... I love what you said. Like it's, it's really, the demands are diverse. Um, how you monitor your interior guys has, has to be different than how you monitor your skills on the plane on the outside, just what they, their jobs, their, from what they look like physically, um, to the qualities that, that are most important for them to how, to what they actually do in practice and in games is just really different. I think 
in a lot of times in our world, people want, you know, one measure, two measures, and then just start across the whole, the whole squad. But um, in football, you just can't do that. So I think breaking it up by position groups and having different metrics, um, you know, one of the, one of the things I did when I was at Virginia Tech is I took a lot of our practice data um, over the course of about two years and then broke it up by position groups. And I did some, um, you know, I did a principal components analysis looking basically at which metrics explain most of the variance within these different position groups. And as you can imagine, and as you just kind of pointed out, like because of the diversity across these different positions, there were very different metrics explaining most of the variance between um, these different position groups. And so boiling it down to, you know, a handful of metrics that represent volume and intensity for each position group um, and then tracking those consistently over time, I think is the best way to go about it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, the demands are very different because of that. You really do have to, to look at different metrics, um, you know, for your different positions. Without listing them out, cause that'd be a pretty dry, but in terms of, can you give us some examples of maybe the particular metrics that you'd look at for one position, position group, and then another one, maybe some things that caught you off guard when you did that analysis of, oh, okay, I didn't realize that would be so important and so important to drill down into for that position group or that position group. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll give you a couple of good examples here. So um, obviously it's really important on, on your skills, the guys that play on the outside, so wide receivers, DBs, um, you know, you have to monitor, you know, their high-speed yardage, so sprint yardage, thinking of anything 90% um, or greater high high speed running, you know that eighty to ninety percent range, and then moderate speed running seventy to to eighty percent. So those are going to be you know considerable. So the high speed, the sprinting, those, that's the harder stuff. You know that's the that's the stuff that's going to explain most of the variance. So basically, be able to tell you the guys that had a harder day versus the guys that maybe had a, a lower day. And so um, with that, the number of efforts. So being able to contextualize that distance a little more. So the number of efforts you're going to have, the sprinting efforts, the, the high speed running efforts, and then the accelerations and decelerations. And so those, that, harder, uh, that harder stuff, the, the more intense stuff that's really going to involve around running um, for your skills, that's going, that those are going to be the things you want to pay attention to. But that... Obviously, anyone that's watched the <laughs> the sport of American football will be able to tell you that is not what your linemen do. That is not what your interior players do. And so, um, depending on what system you're using, whether you're using Catapult, whether you're using Stat Sports, the metrics will be a little different. But um, Catapult, I think, is mostly used in American football. There are teams that do still are teams that do use Stat Sports, but we'll, for this purpose, we'll go with Catapult. I think you're really trying to get at um, with them the a lot of their load is static load. It's these a, a smaller, really aggressive movements, but smaller movements, and they're not covering as much distance. So going to a metric like, um, you know, an IMA and quantifying that by different bands. So IMA low, IMA mid, IMA high, um, being able to have a volume intensity combined metric that picks up these micro movements. Um, so to, so to interject, Mark, what's... what's <laughs> I'm going to ask the question of what is IMA. Now, I used to work at Catapult and we used to get that question asked a lot. And at the time, this was 2016, I don't think we even had a great answer to that. But I'd love to get, and I mean, I've got old since then, so uh, I'm not over Catapult metrics. But what's your understanding of 
IMA? Sure. Um, so an, an inertial movement analysis is what IMA stands for. And in terms of, of again, and I'll, I'll touch on this after, but you can combine it and make a volume intensity where you're looking at it in different bands, which I think um, Pat Ward has put out some tremendous work on, on you know, the quantifying these more load metrics. Same thing with player load, where you combine volume and intensity to be able to, um, you know, to, to be a little more efficient in what you're looking at with your with your data, but, um, but sure. So, uh, IMAs basically are these micro movements, changes of direction, regardless of orientation to where you're basically, if you think about it, it's, if you think about what a lineman does, or if you think about someone that might move within a small, very small space to where they're not triggering an acceleration, they're not triggering a deceleration. They're not really moving their body enough to trigger some of these other movements. They're not reaching a high velocity or anything, but they're making body movements that are really aggressive within a small area. I like to think about it, alignment, you're generally working within a, you're really working within a two to three yard box and you're going to be, you know, hitting someone, you're going to be coming into contact, creating static load. You're going to be moving to your left, moving to your right, pulling, whatever it is within a small area. But those are really aggressive movements. The body's moving. You're moving fast. You're just not going to trigger anything from a from a running load or from a running standpoint in terms of an acceleration that's you know greater than four meters per second squared. Or you're not going to trigger anything like that. So it could go unnoticed. And on player load, if you're looking at just an arbitrary like load number, that's not that's going to be driven more by just duration than anything else. So even from an intensity standpoint, you could go out there and have a really short burst and of these micro movements where you're blocking, where you're pulling, where you're, you know, um, really intense movements and really intense load, but it's not getting quantified appropriately. And so that's where, again, having the, the, you know, something to quantify that with the IMA and these micro movements, but then also quantifying that across a band to where, you know, if, if it's, you know, high, mid, or excuse me, low, mid, or high, then you're able to really be able to, and that's measured in Gs. And then in, in terms of being able to actually um, quantify what's happening in this for their load. And so that's, again, for interior guys, really what, you know, what their demands are and, and how you're going to explain most of the variance in their load, which is ultimately what you're trying to get at, being able to understand who had harder days, higher days, if you use high-low models or whatever, and who had easier days or lower days. And that's what you're able to do, um, you know, when you find these metrics that explain most of that variance uh, among your your data. I know concussion and collision is obviously a big thing for you guys, as it is over here with rugby. How are you trying to get an understanding of impacts and amount of tackles and things like that? I don't know if there's any, is there any advancement in, I don't know if it would be a catapult thing with like helmet mouth guards, um, sensors in pads, all that kind of thing to try to take that conversation on and understand it a little bit better? Um, yeah, so uh, that's not something we really do um, here too much uh, in terms of I, I have in, so when I was at Virginia Tech, there was a lot of concussion research happening. We had individuals there. Um, we were there's a there's an excellent concussion lab there at that university. And so I tracked impacts um, in part to help build a data set to help them have this accelerometer data to go with the data they're collecting that was much more advanced, um, but they wanted to overlay that data. 
Um, and there is, I think, like obviously you have, again, depending on what company you, you work with, they're called different things. But with Stat Sports, you had these impact bands. And with these impact bands, you could just, again, quantify it categorically, you know, um, these different impact levels, um, you know, tied to different, uh, you know, to different Gs. And then from there, um, you know, you could overlay that with some, with some of the concussion data. Is that something that I don't, I don't want to ask you things that you're not comfortable in saying, cause I know it's, you know, certain things stay in house, but is that something that you do at the Texans in terms of trying to understand level of impacts for these guys um, no, to, we, to period out? Okay. We, we actually don't really do that here. Um, just in terms of, of kind of the scope of, of what we do. Um, you know, we don't, we don't use any of that information, um, in conjunction with, with anything, um, that our sports med team is doing in, in regards to concussion research. Um, but that is a really interesting area. And I think that I've had a few conversations with folks, um, Andy Rowland and I talked a lot about this last summer, uh, when, you know, prepping for fall camp, when I was at Penn state, he came up there and visited and we talked a lot about this, um, you know, just because of the, how there's essentially, progressions to collisions and and where contact prep is so important because of the inefficiencies in contact and tackling and how that drives up your impacts the mag the magnitude of impacts because of how inefficient you are when you first you haven't tackled for however many months and then all of a sudden you start hitting all over and tackling and like how that um you know in a lack of in american football there's a lack of proper progression and preparation for the reintroduction of contact. If there's been a long time between, you know, like you go from spring ball to fall camp, you know, you've got a, you've got a whole summer of lag where there's been no contact and you've just been running routes. You've just been, um, you know, skills and drills type thing. And so by the time you get to the season uh, or by the time you get to camp, you're introducing pads, there's not really been a contact prep progression. And so um, there's now a lot more of that being incorporated thinks in large part to Andy's work um, in educating folks and getting information out there, but there's several universities um, and I, I'm, you know, I'm not as familiar with people in the NFL doing it, but I know there's several universities that are, that are really using more contact prep um, based training for conditioning purposes uh, specific, especially to your interior guys having to leverage bodies, move bodies. Um, and then for connective tissue health, for mobility, for the conditioning uh, that's more, you know, they're going to have to move bodies, handle bodies. And so being able to do it, but then also prepping them for tackling, prepping them for being able to, um, to, to progress into contact, uh, in a more, um, a more, a more incremental systematic way of progression, as opposed to just, we're running all the time and then all of a sudden we're, we're hitting. Is that something that is in the remit of your job to help that progression? Or is that specifically a technical um, thing? I, you know, we're, I, I will say um, where we're at right now, we're in a first year of a new coaching staff. Um, and I don't know where we'll be, but there's, there's definitely folks here where we've had these conversations um, and things, but I honestly, like that's, you know, I, I think those are things that we, that we would love to get to, but um, currently it's not anything that we do. Um, and I, I will say that I, I think there's, I think you're going to see more and more, teams utilizing, um, you know, contact prep. And by the time you get to pass, trying to progress to how, to how collisions introduced and how contacts introduced. And so I think you're going to see more and more of that. Um, 
but yeah, that's, that's something we've definitely had discussions about with different folks here, but um, yeah, not anything that we really emphasize right now. Cool. Right. I'm going to, I'm just going to hone in on the, on the speed guys, the guys that are going to get the, the highlight reels. They're the ones that are going to be featured on the TV on a Sunday or Monday. How are you periodizing and you from a load perspective, making sure they're prepared to run fast, but not over-prepared to run fast in, in, in the week? So they're cooked. In terms of a load loading perspective, how are you managing that throughout a week from a Saturday to Saturday or Sunday to Sunday? And what impact are you having on that in terms of, or do you want to have on that in terms of injury reduction um, and just general physical preparation? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, we really try to lock in our load progressions. Um, it's a little different than NFL because in college you have all your guys there all summer. So you're prepping them for fall camp, um, you know, and you're, you're able to control a lot more of the, of the variables. Um, you know, uh, our, our strength coach here, I, I you know, Mike Eubanks, he's fantastic. But anyway, we were talking the other day and he equated it to um, in college, you're able to fly the plane with the door closed. But in the NFL, you're kind of flying the plane with the door open because you you can't control very much. You've got you don't know who's going to be there to every day. You're trying to you're trying to plan an ideal way to progress guys. But then you don't know who's going to be there on a day to day basis because it's not mandatory. And you you have a lot less control over what they're doing. I mean, you may have a guy, you know, that's there half the week, then leaves on vacation for a week, then comes back for a day, then leaves like you just don't know. And so you're really trying to to build this this plan of okay, we're gonna we're gonna sit here and we're gonna plan this ideal progression of what their you know higher speed work's gonna be, you know, what their you know COD series is gonna is gonna look like, and how we're gonna progress their their you know their D cell work and how we're going to progress, you know, in the weight room, what they're doing. And then, you know, when it comes down to it, you're really, you've got, okay, these guys have been here most of the time, or these guys have been here all the time. These guys have been here most of the time. These guys have been here sometimes. We don't know what these guys have done. And you're just trying to piece it all together to make sure that ultimately you just, you're giving them something that's not going to injure them, that's going to help them progress and that they can handle. Um, and it's just, it's, it's really challenging. So, we do really try to plan our progressions and we try to, as we get guys in and out and we're not sure what they've done, we try to talk to them and figure out what they've done. And we also um, try to keep up with it, uh, you know, just in terms of like informing each other, if we know, uh, you know, this guy's, you know, went out and ran routes, you know, last week when he wasn't here, he was in wherever running routes. Okay. Well, we know he's getting some work in there versus another guy. Hey, we don't, we're not sure about him. I've asked and I'm not really clear, uh, you know, on what he's been doing. So we try to, we try to have those conversations on a daily basis, but, um, but yeah, absolutely preparing, uh, you know, the, preparing the tissue, um, you know, the, the hamstring musculature for high speed work and progressing in, in small incremental doses, and then trying to back off at certain times to allow adaptations to occur and prepare them for, you know, next adaptation phases. Like we do, we plan all of that and talk all that out over the off season, um, uh, program, and then trying to introduce that and trying to prepare them ultimately too. what we're trying to do is in our controlled non-chaotic environment, we're trying to, um, to overdose the higher speed work and try more than what they're going to see in camp and then being able to have it from a physical output standpoint, an actual step back when we go into camp 
knowing that the integration of football, that's a, that's a lot of significant stressors from a cognitive load standpoint, the psychological stressors, the fact that you're out there all the time on your feet and the fact that, um, you know, you've got all, you're in this chaotic environment where you, these loads are not the same, you know? And so trying to, from an, in an ideal world in our controlled non-chaotic environment where we're running, you know, builds up, build ups and flies and linear excels. And we're doing, you know, scripted COD series and, and as decent reactive work as you can do, but you can't simulate the chaotic environment of sport perfectly in SNC settings. And so, um, you know, ultimately we're trying to build more of a, a cushion there from a physical output standpoint to where they're going to do more, uh, in a week with us in the off season than what they're going to do in a week of the, of the high speed running of the sprinting of the efforts of what they're going to see in, in, in camp. And so I think we, we do a pretty good job of planning that out. It's just, you, you can't, you, it's impossible for everyone to get that in the NFL because no one, everyone's never going to be there. And then the second piece of that is, you know, there's, there's going to be things that you just don't know about your guys going into camp because you haven't, they haven't been around. And so it's uh, it is very, very challenging, but that's kind of how we plan it out. And we do have, I like to think a pretty good number of guys that actually do for an NFL team that actually do um, train here with us in the off season and that are here 90% of the time for our sessions. Um, and I think that's just a testament to the crew we have here. Mike's got great relationships with the players. Um, it also probably doesn't hurt we're in Houston, Texas, instead of Green Bay, Wisconsin. And so I, that probably helps guys wanting to be here in the summer. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's 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 a um, when you can have we, the more you can make sure they're getting what they need to get and not too much, not too little and being able to progress them and you have more control over that those loads. I think um, the better off you're going to be for you know, reducing the likelihood of non-contact soft tissue type injuries when you're going into camp. Because, I mean, really, if anyone that's worked in football can tell you, the guys that are getting injured the first week at camp are probably guys that haven't been doing much over this. It's it's not because their loads are being mismanaged in camp. It's probably because they haven't been prepared adequately in the summer for whatever reason. So the second half, which is coming up in just a second, is all about monitoring neuromuscular fatigue and then the potential recovery protocols that come off the back of that based on the data that we're collecting. So how we use force platforms, the data that we collect, the metrics that we collect, and some little um, hurdles that we need to get over and be aware of when we're collecting this type of data. So really interesting part two coming up with Mark. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic flooring and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organisations through their own proprietary formula to create world-class environments for coaches and athletes. Play's Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf have been at the cornerstone of elite training facilities for now over a decade with the addition of the new Icon X rack range. Play are once again set to elevate the industry. On the 23rd of April 2022, Play will be hosting their first UK lab of the year in collaboration with Loughborough University. Play will be joined by some exceptional speakers from elite sport, industry and academia with a huge breadth of knowledge and experience. 
Listeners and supporters of Pace Performance Podcast are able to obtain an exclusive 20% discount using the code SPORTSMITH20 when registering at playacademy.com forward slash play hyphen labs hyphen Loughborough. And now back to the episode with Mark. I love that analogy about the, the play with the door wide open. Yeah, I do like that. It's wild. Like every time I hear people talk about who are on the ground in, in the NFL, like it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, is there anything that you can do? I mean, we're gonna we're gonna dive into the kind of acute fatigue side of things, but is there anything that you can do or do do when it comes to the acute I suppose preparation in terms of surrogate measures that's not like to, so you can get a better understanding of where the guys are without actually sprinting them and and potentially injuring them is there anything that you can do there to get a bit of a better idea of what they actually have done and where they're at physically i mean we we try to outside of just talking to them we try to do different types of tests that give us an idea of where they're at um you know our, our initial testing back and i'll give you an example um you know uh, uh, different types of tests we might implement i won't i'll try to be specific without being too specific but basically, like we'll look at everything from where their where their max strength is in something like a, a an ISO belt squat to um, you know how are they accelerating? How are they um, compared to their you know in like a twenty yard you know, compared to where they've been previously? How do they look in between if we're running multiple reps? Like you know how do they look physically when they pull when they get done with the rep? How do they look if you're running something you won't not a conditioning test or anything like that, but if they're doing things that should be easy, does it look easy? Um, before we're introducing them to anything of max velocity or when we're doing flies or anything like that, like there's going to be things that we do and we're watching their body language. We're watching how they, you know, um, you know, okay, this should be easy for them. Um, this should, they should look smooth. If they're looking winded, if they're looking gas, that's going to give you some insight. Um, obviously measures we get on a force plate um, from some of the, depending on their position, um, we do different types of jumps. And so being able to get insight into, um, you know, does it look like, have they fallen off any here? You know, kind of, again, a, a, just a holistic way of understanding, you know, what do their measures look like from all these different qualities that we're assessing and then what we're doing. Um, but then also just from, you know, the, the coach's eye a little bit of, you know, okay, we're, we've got some, you know, some pretty smooth tempos today. We're going to shorten the distance. Um, you know, it's not anything challenging, but how are they looking? Do they look smooth? Do they look winded in between? This is more than enough time for, for rest. Like we're, you know, so information like that, I think can provide a lot of insight into what guys have been doing. Ultimately, you don't want to introduce them to, you don't want to give them too much of a stimulus and introduce them to something they're not prepared for. And so would rather understand and, and, you know, that they're, they've not been doing what you, what they've said they've been doing, or they've, uh, you know, they've not been doing what you wanted them to do. And we're going to, we're going to meet them where they're at in terms of, of the program. Um, and we're not just going to, you know, like, okay, well, today's uh, a linear Excel max velo day. And that's what we're doing. Um, it's, it's, uh, we will absolutely take them aside and, and here because of our staff, we, we are really able to go and have coaches go work with guys one-on-one -on -one or go take them aside. If they're not, if we don't know what they've been doing, we will take them aside and, and go and, and kind of have a one-on-one -on -one session with them. Also, I think sometimes like if you want to slow them down, that's where using, using uh, devices like the 1080 where you can add some resistance and, and you're slowing them down, but you can also see, you can get insight into conditioning. You can get insight into how they look 
uh, mechanically, you can tell if a guy's not been moving a lot, um, you know, um, or if maybe, you know, oh, well, you know, we're seeing something, you know, with his left limb and how he's, you know, how he's striking, how he's, uh, how he's looking in his movement. And so then you can start a conversation. I mean, well, yeah, you know, I was on a flight last week and now my, you know, left side's a little tight and like, I'm not, you know, those are guys we, we, you know, we want to get ahead of that and not have them, you know, being introduced to Max Velo work and the, and the types of more intense things we'd be doing in training. So, we, we can go over and do things on the side and have different devices and different things we utilize to be able to give us more insight into, you know, what they've been doing, if there's pain or discomfort with anything. And because, again, if you've not been seeing guys for weeks, anything could have happened in that time frame, stuff they could have forgotten about. And then they start doing something hard and then they remember, oh, yeah, like, you know, I tweaked my back when, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And, yeah, I don't quite feel right. And at this level, all of that matters because, every individual in our organization like they're there for a reason and keeping them healthy and available impacts every everyone um and so it's it's you want to be very dialed into what you're giving them what you're doing with them and and whatever you can do to make sure they stay healthy and make sure they are getting what they need not too much not too little perfect right i teased it a little bit a minute ago around the acute fatigue monitoring i know this was was this part of your PhD? Uh, yeah, I did do yeah. so. For, for I had a, a couple of manuscripts in my in my uh, dissertation looking at um, using the force plate to look at acute fatigue and time course of recovery in American football athletes. Nice. Let's let's dive into that area now. We were speaking beforehand because I've spoke to Chris Bishop recently, who the 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 dawn when it comes to asymmetries, so it may feed into uh, some of his discussion as well. But when it comes to understanding acute fatigue, I'm guessing this is something that you would dial in, especially in season, because the guys have got ready for the weekend. What protocols are you using? What metrics really matter, or have you come to understand really matter when it comes to uh, acute fatigue when it comes, and, and using force plates? Um, sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think my work and with, with force plates really started in trying to understand, you know, what metrics should we be looking at? Which ones are most sensitive to change? Um, which ones are most reliable? Uh, which ones are going to provide you insight? Because what you don't want to do is you don't want metrics that are too sensitive. Um, but at the same time, you, you, you know, you don't want metrics that are telling you two days after when it, once a guy's so far into a hole that, you know, it, it's a, you know, it's an, it, it's a multiple day issue, um, you know, of non-functional overreaching as opposed to being more sensitive and being able to say, okay, like we can get ahead of this a little bit. We're seeing fatigue in these guys. Like we can get ahead of this from, you know, emphasizing recovery to, um, you know, uh, intervening with what they're doing in the weight room. Most of the fatigue monitoring obviously taking place in season. So trying to understand there's time points where fatigue is intended and planned and making sure that, but there's also times where, you know, you want them fresher and, and making sure that, you know, what you're planning is actually happening and that where the amount of fatigue they're supposed to be under or expected is actually there and, and that in an appropriate amount and that they're actually, their time course to recovery actually fits what you're planning and what you're, you know, what you're expecting. Um, and so I would say, I would preface it by saying that I think if you're using force plates to monitor your athletes, there are some metrics that we know are pretty reliable across most populations. I'll give jump height as an example. Um, but if you're getting more nuanced with different types of metrics, if you're looking at asymmetry measures of like eccentric uh, deceleration impulse, concentric impulse, if you're looking at 
these phase specific type metrics, which I think is the next level of what you want to do, you want to really look at the reliability within your population. So understanding the within individual within individual coefficient of variation of these different metrics and being able to know which ones you should be looking at. And the reason I say that's important within your population is because the more you test, the more your athletes are familiar with, let's use a, a standard hands on hips, double leg counter movement jump. If you do that very frequently and you're consistent in your protocol, you're going to have much better reliability. Um, and if you're consistent with who does it, then in some settings where you've got different interns every week, you know, testing these guys, they may or may not be getting the same cues there. Um, you're not going to see the same reliability. You're not going to see the same CVs in those two examples. And so I think looking at the, okay, which metrics do I want to look at? Which ones from the literature may show that they have good reliability? Now, what do they look like in, in my population in, in the way I, I do things? Because ultimately, if you're, if you're looking at metrics that are, that are changing and, and um, or you're looking at metrics and you're wanting to look at change and you can't be sure that that change is going to be greater than the CV, then, I mean, you could be looking at noise or just standard biological variability. And so I think, I, I think ultimately being able to understand reliability of the metrics you want to look at and have that help determine which metrics you look at is the best way to go about it. Um, and so some of the, some of the metrics that, that I think are useful from a performance standpoint, I kind of think about them in terms of, you know, from, I mean, Rob Gaither Cold's work in this area in terms of strategy and output metrics. Um, and then obviously now, you know, there's been Chris Bishop, Matt Jordan come out with a lot of uh, good information um, in terms of which metrics to look at. But I think probably some of the more popular ones. So like RSI, for example, great metric uh, to look at that kind of is, is a catch all a little bit in terms of you're getting an output. So you're getting jump height as part of that ratio and then you're getting contraction time. So how long they're spending to achieve a given jump height. And so I think um, that's one that a lot of people use. I think uh, to your point, you know, Chris, uh, you know, Chris had the paper where, you know, you really do have to pick apart these ratios to understand what's changing. Um, and so being able to understand, okay, if, if my jump height's staying the same, but my contraction times, you know, going down, then that's a positive adaptation. That's a positive response to a training stimulus. Um, at the same time, if my jump height's staying the same and my contraction times going down, that's a, that's a, I would say a first indication of fatigue. Okay. If you're, if your contraction time's going down and your jump height's going down, okay, now that's, that's an indication that the type of fatigue you're dealing with is more significant um, because they're not even able to change their strategy to achieve a given output. And generally athletes can compensate change of strategy to achieve a given, a, a given output or given performance standard. And if they can't even achieve what's a, a normal um, performance standard for them, even changing their strategy, um, then I would say you're, that's where you see a little bit more of that if using the kind of fatigues or the, uh, fatigue spectrum, so to speak, you're kind of get, getting into that non-functional overreaching world where, you know, there, there's considerable fatigue being built up over the course of multiple days, so more of the residual fatigue as opposed to acute fatigue. Um, but, uh, you know, really I, I think the, and that I think is, is ultimately when you're looking at any of these ratios or when you're looking at these metrics being very purposeful and what you're looking at and making sure that, um, you're, you're looking at things that represent different parts of the movement. And so again, for, for something like the counter movement jump, if you're looking at, 
Um, if you're looking at changes, so, so symmetry on force plates, another big area, but if you're looking at changes um, in symmetry, being able to represent, okay, eccentric deceleration impulse represents, you know, the unweighting and the braking phase of the jump versus, you know, concentric impulse representing the propulsive phase. So being able to split up to where you're looking at different phases of the movement, as opposed to just, you're just looking at a bunch of outcomes from the propulsive phase. Um, so I think that's, that's pretty important too, in, in selecting which metrics you look at. And when we're talking about reliability, you were talking beforehand about looking at on an individual level and the importance of looking at and understanding that versus applying um, that to the group and then potentially having, you know, outliers either way. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so when thinking about um, reliability, again, within the individual, so um, depending on what your testing frequency is, you can look at, uh, you know, within session uh, you know, CVs. So understanding the variation within three to five jumps, typically three is what you'll see with a counter movement jump. So three jumps. So what is the variation within that particular session? And then between sessions, what's the retest reliability? If you're standardizing when you test, you can look at that, um, you know, through using like, uh, through, you know, doing like, um, uh, interclass correlation coefficients and looking at re retest reliability. Again, if you standardizing when you test and you're able to compare that, um, I think ultimately being able to understand um, the coefficients of variation within sessions and being able to compare your percent change to uh, the coefficients of variation is a good way to go about seeing if, you know, what's, you know, is my, is my change real change? And then obviously you can use effect sizes to look at magnitude of change to understand is this a is this a large negative change is this a, a very large negative change giving you more perspective on the magnitude of change but first and foremost you have to understand is the change i'm seeing real or is it and i think i the best way to explain it that i you know that i always when i'm, I'm talking to people about it is i say you know think about the cv percentage as noise and the percent change as a, as a signal and the signal has to be greater than the noise. Otherwise you don't know if you're just looking at, you know, measurement error and biological variability versus actual real changes taking place. When it comes to these, the protocols that you're using to, to try to understand this, is this game day, is this a, the day after game day or are you doing this systematically throughout that post game period so you can, tailor recovery you can modify training all that kind of stuff you want to tell us a little bit about that sure yeah i mean i've done it different ways um doing it the day after the game where where you're expecting okay there the guys are gonna you know we expect fatigue to be here the best the, the 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 reason to do it the day after the game in my opinion is that you're able to then look at the better look at the time course of recovery over the week if you wait till later in the week where you're expecting them to be recovered then you don't really you're you're not able to understand that time course over the week, which I think is important and ultimately helps over time being able to understand and get ahead of things. Because if you're jumping, I know in some, some protocols, you know, people might jump towards the end of the week because the theory being, I know they're fatigued early in the week. We don't need information telling us what we already know. We'll just look late in the week and then see. But the problem with that, I think, is that if you're waiting till a day before the game or, two days before the game to see if they're fatigued, uh, then, um, you know, in American football, again, thinking that we, you know, if we, we play once a week, if you're waiting till the end of the week, your time for an intervention point and getting ahead, I mean, you, you don't really have much time, especially given 
like if, if you're traveling and doing these other elements, like there's not a lot you can control because generally depending on what model Friday is going to be a very, if you're testing on like a Thursday and you play on a Saturday, Friday is going to be a short day anyway. There's not really any weightlifting going on. There's not much you can do at that point. You're just saying, well, this person's not where they should be. Um, so if you start earlier in the week, I think it gives you a better idea. And then over time you're able to, to, okay, this guy, you know, this is week five and this is, he's normally about, again, like depending how you're analyzing the information, but let's say, you know, he's, we normally see, you know, a, about a, a large negative change. So we're normally about a standard deviation, uh, or, uh, one and a half standard deviations below, um, on RSI. And now all of a sudden he's two and a half standard deviations. That's not his norm. All right. For whatever reason, maybe it's the fact, maybe it's as simple as he just had a lot more playing time and a lot more reps in the game. Maybe it's like, hey, like he had a tough game, but then also he just didn't respond well um, in terms of like, you know, maybe it was emotionally draining, whatever it was. But for whatever reason, he's below where we normally see him. I now have a week to be able to say, okay, like I've got weightlifting sessions that I can modify if needed, I've got practices. Uh, kind of, you know, that I can modify based on whatever system you run, you could modify those. You have time for recovery. You have time for assessments. Like maybe, maybe this is tied to something that that's maybe his, maybe this is tied to something to do with uh, a limb that's bothering him or something that's, or, or some type of, um, of uh, discomfort that he's having. Like there's all these different possibilities, but you have now have five days to figure that out as opposed to at the end of the week, I find out this guy's not where he should be. And now it's just basically, I know that going into the game. And so I think, I think from my standpoint, it's really important. Okay. Day after the game and then sometime midweek. And then if you can do an ideal world towards the end of the week, but at the very least after the game and then on like a Thursday, um, if you're playing college and you're, and you're playing on Saturday, obviously that would be pushed back a day if you're in the NFL setting and playing on Sunday, um, but basically where you're, you know, game day minus two testing into the week um, and you're testing game day plus one um, on uh, after the game. Last thing, because I know you've got to, <clears throat> you've got to get to the, to the, to the facility not, in not too um, not distant future. Is there any particular recovery methods that you use or have you standardized methods based off how the, each player reacts to that acute monitoring, sorry, acute fatigue monitoring or is it very much on an individual basis does that make sense yeah absolutely yeah i think um so there's there's layers to that i i think uh first and foremost when you're monitoring fatigue i think you know why are you monitoring the fatigue i think one you're seeing if if what you planned actually happened so if it's meant to be like where are you at in the training cycle where are you at in terms of what that you know, what that training session should, should have been. And is that level of fatigue expected? If it's an adaptation cycle, if you're in the off season and, and fatigue's expected, like facilitating recovery is not going to be a primary option or not going to be a, prim a priority um, because maybe you want the body naturally, you know, to respond to that stress and there's adaptations to occur. You don't need to facilitate uh, expedited recovery, but if you're in season and you're trying to expedite recovery, I think, uh, you know, the low hanging fruit is making sure they're, you know, from a sleep nutrition standpoint in the NFL, even that's one of the first things, you know, that you, that you want to cover. Um, if we're seeing guys, you know, that, you know, recovery is a concern, we're seeing levels of fatigue 
um, that are beyond their norm or, or um, you know, with how we analyze that and using, you know, again, whatever you use, if you use Z-scores or whatever you use, but if you're seeing, okay, recovery is an issue, then sleep and nutrition, um, those being the first things that are covered. In terms of the modalities, I think there's some that we know where there's some evidence. So uh, cold water immersion, um, I, I think, is one where we know there's a, a, some evidence supporting the efficacy of its use. Um, there's a lot of others where I think, I look at it this way, is the effect either going to be null, so there's no effect or a positive effect, then let's make it available and let the players kind of choose what they utilize. I think that's a win-win for a couple of reasons. One, there's going to be no harm done with them using it if it's a null effect or positive effect. And two, you're giving them some autonomy in choosing what they do as opposed to saying, you know, this is this is something you have to do. So um, what we do here and what you know, what I think is, is probably the best approach is having a lot of options available and kind of talking with them and helping them be educated on, on what these different options might be if they're if they're new and they've not, you know, they've not been exposed to these options. Um, I think educating them on that and then the options that we know, for example, CWI, where we're like, OK, there's there's some evidence here, especially given the time of season you're in, if you're in season, if you're in camp and expedited recovery is is. Um, is the priority, then I think definitely being able to say, we would like you to do this. Um, we, you know, we, we think this is helpful. There's, there's research out, like you can, you can educate them on that. I still think having, you know, that's obviously a choice, but I think giving them some autonomy in it and making a lot of different options available, even if the scientific evidence may not be there to support its efficacy, I think is still a, a good option in terms of, of recovery modalities. Um, I think contrast therapy, obviously, uh, is, you know, we, we see efficacy with it and there are others, I'm not comprehensive list, but, um, we do have a range of things available. I will say that, uh, in terms of, of managing fatigue, um, you know, I think what you do in the weight room is, you know, in, in our sport is, you know, the first place where you have complete control over that as, you know, working in the performance side. And so that's the first place you can start, um, um, making adjustments uh, in what they do, and so whether that's changing from you know uh, um, you know full range of motion squats, or whether that's you know taking away from volume, or saying we're going to take full range of motion, we're going to manipulate range of motion, we're going to do isometrics instead of you know full range of motion squats, um, or we're going to take you know we're going to reduce volume through reps or reducing the number of sets or whatever it is. Um, I think that's, uh, you know, uh, uh, the first kind of layer. And then after that, I think you can get into manipulating what they do in terms of practice reps, in terms of whether that's reducing overall reps, they're available all periods and reducing reps, so rep capping them or certain periods that may not be as important as others in conversation with the coaches um, to give them, you know, to lighten their load on the day. And so all of these being options. And kind of the flow, I think, in terms of how you manage fatigue, starting from like the low hanging fruit of sleep and nutrition through recovery modalities, through starting to manipulate their workloads um, in weight room and then in, um, you know, on the on the field. I can hear you getting pinged. So I hope that's not uh, someone saying, no, Mark, no, no, come no, on, you're it, late. It Stop be. talking. I'm sure I'm, I'm, it's, it's, it can't be that important. <laughs> no, that's fine. But I am conscious that you've got a shoot in, in well, 18 minutes. So thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Again, apologies for 
the back and forth on my side, and you've got a you've got a very much a valid excuse because you're in the thick of it right now. So I appreciate you working around me. But anyone that wants to get to know you or your work or what you're doing day to day, what's the best place? Social media a good place? Yeah, I'm I'm pretty responsive on social media, um, Twitter and Instagram, um, Mark T. Lewis, M-A-R-C-T-L-E-W-I-S. Um, and then obviously, uh, if anyone wants to to reach out via email, uh, it's uh, drmarklewis at gmail.com is my personal. So um, D-R-M-A-R-C-L-E-W-I-S at gmail.com. That's my personal email. So I'm fairly responsive there. So either way is good. And I'm more than happy to talk shop with folks. I'm always... Uh, I always enjoy, you know, connecting with people um, and just learning about what other people are doing um, and being able to talk shop a little bit, I think is a lot of fun. Obviously right now, not having as much time, but like during, during times where I'm have some weekends available or some evenings available, then I always like to jump on calls with folks and find out what people are doing. Cause you can always learn, um, always take a conversation away from someone and or have a conversation and take something away that's, that's new or, or uh, just something to give you a, you know, that you can think about and, and try to apply. Love that. Well, thanks, Mark. Really appreciate it. Have uh, have a good rest of the day and, and thanks for joining me. Thanks, Rob. I had, a, I had a blast. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the PC Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Mark for giving up his time in a very, very busy time of year for those guys at the Texans. Also, big thanks to Team Builder, Hawking Dynamics and Play for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in and look forward to chatting to you next time.